All right. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 19, and I'm going to read through verse 24. Please stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Ezekiel 18, verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the Son suffer for the iniquity of the Father, when the Son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes? He shall surely live, the soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So I I put this together for you on a a PowerPoint, a little presentation here, because I want you to to be able to get this and remember it. You can take some pictures, take some notes, and let's really think through the topic at hand. And that is bearing up your father's sin. Uh, I want to talk a little about generational curses, and I want to talk to you about your life. With this new year coming and the thoughts of new beginnings continually on our mind at this time of year, I want to take advantage of that, and I want to talk to you about just what it takes to start fresh, to start new, and to maybe even start something that's never been started before in the history of your family, at least to your knowledge. Uh, I want to talk to you about how to really make a difference and. If you know me, then you'll know where I'm going, but I want to really talk about and unpack this in a practical way that we can maybe install some of these things to change the way that we think about a few things in order that we would really see real results this coming new year, even this coming week. Oftentimes, we make these resolutions, we think about changing, we know that we have something in our life that we need to change, and we just get so caught up in the idea of change that we make all of these grand decisions and all of these commitments and they're short-lived and we really don't make any changes maybe for a day maybe for a week maybe if you're lucky and you're really really after it maybe a month but then it normally and usually goes right back to the same old thing and a side note here I think a lot of that is because we have we, we have an idea of what progress looks like. And when we can't hit that mark immediately, then we often abandon ship and we stray off course 
and we never, we never get to our destination because we weren't happy with the one foot in front of the other. We weren't happy. We weren't satisfied. We weren't satisfied with these short steps it takes to eventually get to this destination that we'd like to be headed in and that we'd like to get to. And so let's talk a little bit about bearing up your father's sin. So the first thing I want to get to, we're going to start back in verse 1 of chapter 18, and we're just going to move through it. I'll be moving rather quickly. Like I say, take some snapshots of these things, go back and read it, consider some of these things, because I've got a destination too that I'm trying to get to in this sermon even, and we need to move to get there. So chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. So what's going on here? One of the issues that we're facing here, and I hope you guys can see this. One of the issues that these Israelites were facing here is that they had known the word of God, they had read the word of God, but they had misinterpreted, they had misunderstood, and I would say wrongly interpreted something that God had said, a general proverb that God had set forth, and this actual uh, quote comes from Jeremiah, and it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 39, and it says this in Jeremiah, in those days they will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth have been set on edge. The idea was, was that because of the father's sins, eating the sour grapes, the children's teeth were set on edge. So the father ate the grapes, and the children made the face. You ever, you ever bet your child to you know, eat a lemon at lunch or something like that? I, I used to, I've done this with every one of my kids. And we just did it last week, didn't we, Titus, with Ella Ray? Actually, Titus, I bet him, uh, what was it, 10 bucks? or I still owe you money for that, don't I? I bought your dinner, and he, we were at, we were at Miyako's, and you know they get that big uh, dollop of, of wasabi sauce. I hate that stuff. I like hot stuff. I like hot stuff, but I hate that stuff, right? I hate horseradish, and so you keep that junk away from me. And so I bet Titus, I think it was like 10 or $15 or something, that he wouldn't eat that whole big dollop at one time. And he's like, all right. And so I said, no, you got to chew it at least three times. And you have to swallow or you don't get the money. And Titus, to his credit, takes that big chunk of wasabi, throws it in his mouth, and he just goes. <laughs> As with the other hand, he's reaching for his sweet tea. <laughs> and in the same meal, uh, El Ray now wants, you know, I want some money. What can I eat? Well, I'm not feeding El Ray wasabi, okay? So I gave her the lemon, and she ate the lemon, and she was all. And I gave her a dollar to eat the lemon. So, but the point here of the proverb is that the, the people Ezekiel's talking to, they had taken that proverb to the extreme. And they had taken it as if it was a solidified fact all the way across the board, all the time, always. If your father sins, you'll pay the price. So the father eats the sour grapes, the children's face gets all, you know, squinched up, and, and they feel the effects of it, and they have to deal with that. They, they are under the weight of their father's sin. Well, what he's going to do here is he's going to correct them. And he's going to correct them with the word of God. The people have misapplied a proverb. The result was a belief that severely affected their lives and their actions. So they had read this proverb. They had, they had witnessed this continual 
a vicious cycle of sin, uh, repent, sin, repent, or mercy, sin, mercy, and this vicious cycle that would just repeat and repeat and repeat. And so they had taken this proverb that said, you know, I don't know what I don't know what to do. There's no way out of this. The bottom line is, is that we are under condemnation. We can't get out. Why? Not because of what we've done, but because of the sins of our fathers. And so what was their thought? Their, their thought was, I will never escape the sins of my father. Therefore, I may as well enjoy my sin and dwell therein. This was, and, and does this not happen to us in everyday life, right? We get caught in this vicious cycle and we we feel like, well, this is, this is what I was born to be. This is who I am. I was born into this family. I was born into this atmosphere. Maybe I was born into this uh, community of, of mostly poor or desolate or sinners or drug addicts. And we find this happens a lot. And to be fair, when you're born into a drug-ridden community, and that's all you're around continually and always, it's, it's hard to see a way out of that, right? You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the old saying goes. But it's really hard to, to get your act together when everybody around you not only doesn't have their act together, but you know as well as I do. When you start to better yourself, or, you know, we're Christians here, we believe the gospel. So when you when you give yourself to Christ and he starts to transform you, not only are you surrounded by people who are not desiring transformation and progress, but they desire not to see you transformed and, and, not, and to see you not progressing as well. Why? It's because when you start to be a light, then that light sheds light on their darkness, on their sin. And so that's why you get so much flack, and that's why people come against you. Have you ever noticed that? Who's noticed that in here? When you try to do better, people will try to pull you down because when you go up, it reveals how low they are. And so they try to make themselves better by dragging you back down. So a lot of the times we get caught in this cycle, we say, you know what? There's nothing I can do about this. Forget it. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to enjoy being here they had resigned to the life that they had been chosen that had been chosen for them by those who came before and i put chosen here in quotation marks because that's what we feel like sometimes right this is this is my fate we say this is just who i am i, I can't do anything about it i was born here this is just who i am and and a lot of the times it goes so far and i think a lot of the times it goes so far as to be an embrace this is who I am. This, so you see drug addicts, greedy people. So, you know, we, we oftentimes think about the slums. So it could be like, you know, violent rednecks or, you know, thugs on drugs or whatever. But think about it this way. Think about the greedy. Think about those who love money more than people. Think about those who get all of their identity from the accolades or the houses or whatever and secretly inside they're miserable human beings and they're got this grand facade on so they're in the same place maybe even worse than the people in the ghetto because their sins and their struggles and their misery looks like it's wonderful paradise when in reality it is a shackle that they cannot loosen and so they have resigned to the life that they have been chosen for them, that have been chosen for them by those who came before. So this is this idea that I didn't choose this, I was born into this, but this is who I am. We can almost start to take pride 
in that idea. So is this what God would have? Is this what God meant from that? And I don't think it is because immediately after that in verse 3 he says, As I live, declares the Lord God. So this is God speaking through Ezekiel. This proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Now is he saying that the word of God was bad or fallacious or erroneous as they had read it? No, no, no. He's not saying that the word of God is bad and, and don't you use that proverb anymore. No. What he's saying is, is that this interpretation and this use of this scripture shall never be used like this again because it's wrong and you're killing people. And let's make no bones about it. When someone believes something, lock, stock, and barrel, it affects the way, that, it affects the way they act. It affects the way they speak. It affects the moves that they make, the risks that they take, the people that they love, how they love those people. It affects everything. Your actions spring forth from your beliefs. And so what they believed about this verse absolutely had a powerful impact on who they were and what they were about. So he's going to bring a, bring a clarification of the understanding through the word of God. So the word of God was being misused and he is going to do what? He is going to say, you have misunderstood this and you need to understand it rightly. And so the word of God will correct your understanding of the word of God. Scripture interprets scripture. That's how we test the truth of any word, whether it be coming from you internally or whether it be coming from your understanding of the word of God. How many times have you known someone to say something that you know to be fallacious, but they cherry pick verses from the Bible in order to prove their point? And what are they doing? They're misusing the word of God to try to, to, try to lord something over you, to try to bring a false authority. But the problem is, is that the authoritative word of God is only authoritative in so much as it is accurately interpreted as God intended it to be. You must be able to accurately interpret the word of God. And how do we know that we've accurately interpreted the word of God? I was in the gym a while back now, and I was talking to this guy, and I've had many conversations with this guy. And he is one of these guys that believes in the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that will enlighten you to truths that cannot be seen by anyone else. Now, let me, let me clarify for a second. I do believe that the Holy Spirit is our greatest teacher. I believe that wholeheartedly. The problem with that is, is that when he would set forth an idea, I would say, where did you get that understanding? He would say, ah, the Holy Spirit has given me this grand understanding. And it was a fallacious understanding. Now, how do I know? Not because I'm a genius, right? But because I say, well, you just said this, you cherry-picked this verse, but what about these other four verses and just quote scripture that absolutely destroy his idea? This actually happened. He comes back to me with this. Well, the Holy Spirit has revealed to me that that is a misunderstanding and that this is right. But what he was saying was clearly, not with one verse, not with my interpretation, but just reading straight from the text destroyed what he was saying. And when I confronted him with that and I said, do you believe that the, the, the Holy Spirit enlightening you can overwhelm and overcome and contradict what this word actually says? Not what I, just me reading it. And he says, oh, absolutely, the Holy Spirit is more powerful than the Bible. That's how you know that, it, that he is hearing from the spirit, a demonic spirit. And that's, I'm telling you the truth. What do you think Paul means in Thessalonians where he says, test the spirits? 
There's demonic influence all over this place. If you don't believe that demonic influences is real and, and the demonic world is real, then you are in for a rude awakening. I got sidetracked there. My point is this. We test scripture with scripture and we interpret scripture with scripture. That's how we understand, not with our own lofty ideas or understandings. That's what he's going to do here. He's going to clarify, bring clarification to the understanding of the Word of God through the Word of God. So the clarity of thought would be brought to the people of God through his Word. Listen to what he says. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall, be, uh, shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the fathers as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. So what does he say? The intention was for the clarity to bring about true change. The way that they believed was, the, was to affect the way that they were living and interacting with God and each other. One's actions is not to be decided by that which came before. It is to be decided by reflecting upon the word of God, the truth. So what he says here is, is, don't use that word like that anymore. The bottom line is, is that each individual is accountable for his own sins. That's the clarification. That's what the verse says. Behold, all souls are mine. Each, each and every individual soul is mine. The soul of the fathers as well as the soul of the son. You see, he's distinguishing them, distinguishing them there. Before, in the, the way they were using the Proverbs, they were one. When the father sinned, the son paid. You see that? One, one payment for these sins. Here he's saying, no, the father is an individual, the son is an individual. They each have souls. They are persons. They have an identity that is unique unto themselves. And the sins that the father has, he'll pay for. The sins that the son has, he will pay for. You pay for your own individual sins. So he's brought clarification. He's going to bring further clarification here as we move through the text. So every individual will answer for his own sins. Let's move a little further. So he, he moves on and he says, we'll read the text in just a second. If an individual is faithful to keep the commandments of God and is faithful to him, he is righteous. Now what he's going to do is he's going to say, you can't hold the, the father's sins against the son if the son's not a sinner. If the son is righteous, then he escapes the condemnation that is upon his father because the son is not going to pay for the father's sins, but he is going to account for his own actions, his own individual actions, beliefs, thoughts, and so on. Listen to what the text says. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, uh, lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread <coughs> to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend an interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. There's a distinction. So some are sinners, some are righteous. You can't account the sins of the wicked, the unrighteous, to the righteous. No, they are, they are accounted, they have to account for their own individual acts. It goes on. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. He's, and he will clarify this even more so here in just a second. He's going to have a hypothetical situation where he says, what if a father is a sinner the son sees the sins of the father, yet turns and lives a righteous life. Will he still have to pay? 
over and over again. He's going to hammer this message home, okay? Let's bring that back to us for just a second. Now, you're in a situation, you've been born into a family that does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been born into a family with a father who is maybe violent, maybe he's a drunkard, maybe he's greedy, uh, maybe he's a liar, maybe he's a cheat, uh, whatever the case may be. He's unrighteous, okay? Now, when you're born in that family, there's, it's inevitable. When you're growing up, you're going to see all of these things. You're going to see his actions, you're going to know... Most of the time, those men are maybe violent at home. They may even play games and put on a facade, put on a face out in the world. They come back home, and you have to see this, this wickedness and this sin. Now, that child, whether uh, son, daughter, whatever it might be, is continually seeing the wickedness and the sins of this father. They have to make a decision at some point. Are they going to follow in the footsteps of their father, father or are they going to make a change and do something different? Are they going to... Are they going to uh, walk down the same path, take the same actions, have the same beliefs? Or are they going to go a different path and are they going to be righteous in spite, despite all of this wickedness that they've been indoctrinated with? Now, that is a hard road to hoe. That is a, a hard place to get out of when it's all you've ever seen and when it's all you've ever known. I know, I ministered to these guys. I was this guy, right? And so, all I, so I was smoking weed when I was 11 years old. Okay, why? Because everybody around me was smoking weed, right? I was drinking, I was getting drunk by the time I was 12, 13 years old. And, I, and here's, the, here's the odd thing. I'm going to tell you something here. I'm going to confess something here. When Heather and I were dating, now she put up with me for years and years and years. And she never went down that road. She had a different upbringing than I did. She never went down that road. But we were together and she was trying to preach the gospel to me. She was trying to lead me crazily thinking that she could change me right but she was in it right she should have abandoned my tail a long time ago right but she did she stayed with me and you know I used to tell her this is how so I would smoke weed it was no big deal right and many of you I guarantee I know some of you so I already know right you don't think weed's that big of a deal you don't think drugs is that big of a deal you don't think it well yeah I get drunk man you know everybody gets drunk so with me things that to her were like what? I was like, yeah, so what? Right? I was in doctor. I, I was callous to it. A sinful eye. I saw sin all the time. All the time. All the time. It, people coming and going, parties, and me being, I wanted to be a part of it, all of it. I wanted it. It was normal to me. That was, that's what life was. And so I used to, when, when Heather and I were dating in that stage, and I was a hellion, and, and she was an angel, a saint, you know, comparatively speaking, for sure. I used to tell her, whenever we have kids, you better believe that the rite of passage is that when my son turns 18 years old, I'm taking him to a strip club. And this, we would argue about this because I was proud. I would. But you see, I snorted coke and went to strip clubs with my dad. And some of the, and I'm telling you this because this is the world in which you live. You think that this is like over there somewhere, maybe the Bronx, you know, I don't know, maybe Chicago. No, this is right down the street. This is some of you. And so I was locked into this pattern. As a matter of fact, and I can't spend a whole lot of time with this, but I had built my entire identity. As a matter of fact, I didn't know who I was outside of this. I really didn't. And so I was doing things that I really didn't even want to do because what other identity did I have? And so my dad was known for fighting around town and how well he could fight and all this kind of stuff. And I, and I had no not much of a relationship with my dad, so I really wanted to win his approval. So what I do? 
I've, every time I'd go into a bar, everybody knew Brandon Porter was looking for a fight. And I wanted to fight the biggest, baddest one. Why? Because I needed that. I needed that to know who I was. I needed that to have any type of identity at all. And if I didn't have that, I felt worthless. I felt useless. And so I felt locked and trapped. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> after a while, I didn't feel locked and trapped. Maybe a part of me did. But after a while, I embraced it. I embraced it. I can drink more than anybody, smoke more than anybody, do whatever. I can fight. I can do all this stuff. And it was just a joke. If, if anybody with half a brain looking from the outside looking in would look at that guy, and I thought I was all tough, would look at that guy and say, what a miserable soul. What a miserable soul, especially if they could see me on the inside. And how many people I talk to, and they're, they're running with this crowd, and they're tough guys. You know, I see these guys walking down the streets of Landrum all the time. And when I talk to these guys, they don't know what to think, right? Because I was there. And so I don't play those games, you know? And I'll be like, you think you're tough, don't you? And, you know, they walk around like this. I'll be like, you think you're tough. I'm like, you're not tough. You're a joke. Let me tell you about a real man. Let me tell them about Jesus Christ. Look for all these segues, I'm telling you. And those guys respond to that kind of stuff. You know, they don't do this whole limp-wristed hippie Jesus who just wants to love everybody. They need Revelation 19 Jesus who is tatted on his, on his thigh, you know, on his robe and on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's treading out people in the wine press of his wrath. Like, you can bow the knee to that guy. You better, or you're going to get the slam smackdown put on you, right? But you get trapped. You feel trapped. And, and then after a while, you don't even feel trapped anymore. This is who you are. You embrace it. This is who you are. So you trap. But we're not, we, it's not as if we have to stay there. We don't have to stay there. And as a matter of fact, not only do you not have to stay there, but God is longing for you to come out. You know, I'm, we're talking about, uh, Keith had asked me if I'd take this debate with this guy. And the debate is about the, uh, how, what was the, what was you saying? The gospel call going out to all people. Yeah, yeah, but what was the, it, it was the. Yeah, it was like a, um, a genuine offer. So is there a genuine offer to all? And, and I believe, see, I, you know, I've been labeled as a Calvinist, but I'm, I'm thinking about debating this Calvinist. <laughs> because it, the truth is in the middle. You see, is there a genuine call to all? Well, the Bible right here, and this is not the topic, and I'm way off topic right now, but it says he doesn't want any to go down this path of wickedness, but he longs for all to repent and turn around. And I just say all that to say this is that you don't have to be locked into the sins of your father. You don't have to carry around that burden. You can shed that burden. I'll tell you how in just a little bit. You can get rid of that burden, and you can live your life the way that God has called you to live your life. You don't have to live under that shelter anymore. You don't have to be what they're saying that you have to be. You don't have to say what you've convinced yourself. You don't have to be what you've convinced yourself you have to be. There is newness. There is newness. I can't wait to get to that part. Okay, so. The righteous will live. He, the righteous, shall surely live, declares the Lord. So you've got a sinful father, mother, whole history of family that's just living this horrid life. You don't have to continue in that. And if you would repent, if you would change your ways, if you would stop all the wickedness and all the sin and come into righteousness, then you would live even if they die. And as a matter of fact, oftentimes you could have an impact on those that you are coming from in ways that you can never imagine. As a matter of fact, i got to hurry up, but 
As a matter of fact, in this very, I, gotta, I do got to tell this story. In this very building right here, okay, I'll give you a little bit of history. This building used to be Breakthrough Church. Mike Nelson was a pastor. When we were praying, we prayed for a year to ask the Lord if he would have us to actually plant this church. We had the vision. We had the passion. We wanted to know and, and have the call confirmed. So me and several men, some of them are elders now, prayed for an entire year just to ask the Lord if this is what it would have. Well, in, in that whole process, uh, Mike Nelson had asked me to come and preach here one day. Okay, this is before the well ever existed. I came and preached here one day. Uh, my mom came. She listened. My mom was not a believer. She came and listened to the preached word of God, and she got saved that day. Okay? Now, it, that's good. That's, that deserves more than one amen. My mom got saved that day. <laughs> okay, that was a little better. But on the way out that day, I was pulling out of the parking lot, and I told Heather, my wife, I told Heather, I said, I don't know why, but I believe God's going to give us this building and our church will be here. She said, you're crazy. You can't act like that. That's what she said. She'll tell you that's what she said. About four, five, about five years later, we had a meeting to try to buy this building and they gave us this building. And we're preaching here now. My mom got saved right here. The stage was over there. I was preaching. She got saved about right there. You can affect change in your family like you could not possibly imagine. So here we are in the present situation. Many of you may be sitting up under the weight of your father's sins when actually you, you could be the very vessel and the instrument that God uses not to only get yourself out from under the weight of that sin, but to also shed the light and to pour the blood that would wash away the sins that they have as well. Remember how those guys drug their friend to Jesus and tore a, a hole in the roof? So every individual will be rewarded for his own righteous deeds. Okay, so further clarification here. <clears throat> Verses 10 through 13. Let me read those right quick. So we, we, he set apart the righteous. So he's, what he's doing is he's making a distinction between individuals. He's making a distinction between the actions that you personally take. You're accountable for your own life. So he's talked about the righteous. Then he says in verse 10, If, if uh, he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who, did not, who does any of these things, though he himself does, did none of these things, who even eats up the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not store, restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit, uh, shall he then live? He shall not live. He, he has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. So here it is. He says, if he fathers a son who is violent. So you have this man who fathers this son. One son turns out uh, righteous. One son turns out violent and wicked. It's not about what the father has done. It's about what that individual son does. If he lives righteously, then he'll live. If he sins, then he will surely die, right? Okay, so this is the principle established. If an individual is unfaithful to keep the commandments of God and is unfaithful to him, God, he is wicked. He has done all these abominations. That's what the text says. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. And this is where we find this understanding that your, your willingness or your will, yeah, your willingness to die and your intentional sins against the Father. You know, people shake their fist at God because people go to hell, right? 
at the idea that people go to hell. You start talking about hell and especially the liberal and, and now some uh, liberal Christian circles. They say, oh, our God is so loving. He's so loving. He would never send anyone to hell. Well, okay, I, I can't get into all of that, but the bottom line is, is that a God that does not send the wicked to hell is not loving in the least sense of the word. Why? Because he has overlooked those who have murdered your sons and daughters. He has completely just, just not, even, not even shown a care for all of the wicked injustice in this world. No, a truly loving God does send people to hell because he is just and he is righteous. And he pays back wicked for what it deserves. And that is eternity in hell fire. Now, this should be building to you saying, man, that kind of concerns me. He surely will die, the wicked. He surely will die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now, we've already said, and it'll come up in the text a little bit later, God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not like God's going, man, I hope he doesn't repent. I'd love to toast one more, right? That's, that's not what God is doing. No, God is brokenhearted that anyone would go to hell, that any would perish, right? Remember that verse that all the Arminians use, right? The First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I think it is, is that, God is not uh, slow as we understand it, but he is patient, longing that everyone would be saved, longing that none would perish. So God is not longing for any to perish, and he's not forcing anyone to sin. This is another high Calvinist problem, this double predestination that God elects the unrighteous the same as he, as he elects the righteous, or he, he elects those to condemnation the same way that he elects those to regeneration. No. Those who are uh, unregenerate, those who are condemned, those who, are, those who find themselves spending eternity in hell, they do so by their own will, volition, and choice. They choose to go to hell. Why? Because they hate God. As a matter of fact, God has all day long poured out his message, even through the mountains and the trees and the flowers, to come, come unto me, all you who are weary. Come all to me. The heavens declare the glory of God. And those who are under the clouds and under the sun look up and they spurn God and they hate his stinking guts. It is not as if God has not... A million times over, shown them grace and mercy and longing steadfast love in a million, billion, trillion different ways. And they wanted nothing to do with him. This idea that hell is comprised of uh, a billion people loving God and wishing that they could have been elsewhere is, uh, to me, I can't find it in the scripture. But it is people who hate his stinking guts. And they wouldn't go to heaven if you begged them to, even while still there. Why? It's because they love their sin. They love their sin more than they love God. Why would they abandon, why would they abandon their sin to go after God? They hate God. They love their sin. It says here, his blood shall be upon himself. Why? And why the individualism here? Why the accountability on each individual level? It's because you made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. You see, our culture doesn't want to hear that anymore. It's always somebody else's fault. No, my dear, it is your fault. You have done this. You are the one who slept in and missed a job interview. You are the one who didn't show up to work and got fired. You are the one who stole that thing and got locked up. You are the one that punched your brother and he didn't deserve it and so you got your tail tore up. It's your fault. 
And I will point the finger at all of you and say it's your fault. And I understand I have three more pointing back at me that it's my fault too. And that's just the reality of the situation. You have committed those sins and you will pay for them. I have committed my sins and I will pay for them. His blood shall be upon himself. Every individual will answer for his own sins. Ezekiel 18, 14 through 18 says this. Now suppose this man's father. Okay, here's the hypothetical that I was telling you about just a moment ago. Okay, so now let me clarify just one second. So remember, let's remind ourselves. The people that Ezekiel are talking to, they had taken this word of God, this proverb. It says, the father ate sour grapes and uh, the children's teeth were set on edge. So the father did the act and the, the children had to deal with the repercussions. He says, you've used this in all the wrong ways. You're not going to use this anymore like this. Enough of that. Let me tell you what it really means. <clears throat> and if you go back and read the Jeremiah chapter 29, <clears throat> it's really powerful. And Jeremiah 29 comes right before Jeremiah 30 and 31 and the new covenant that's promised. And we're going to get to that in just a second, right? Because if I'm you, and I don't know if you're really paying attention, but if I'm you, everything I've read so far is terrifying, <laughs> right? Because every one of you will pay for your own sins. Oh, no, right? He set up to this point, he says, look, don't use that verse like that anymore. I do not unjustly uh, punish children for the sins of their father. In other words, and, and remember the plight of Israel. You know, they were in the land, it was going well. They did, they did not listen to God. The next generation fell away. They didn't look at the good uh, examples that uh, many of their fathers gave to them. But they went their own way. They fell into sin. And what do they do? It's the same thing our culture is doing right now. We find ourselves in a mess. And what do we always do? Well, it's not my fault. It was his fault, right? It's not, it was that generation that came before us. It's that, it's that arm of the government. No, it's Republicans. No, it's not. It's Democrats. No, it's not. You know what it is? It's you. It's me. It's every individual. If we would all, as, and I hate identity politics, makes me sick stop finding uh, your identity or, or lumping all people and even if you're a conservative and i'm a conservative stop talking to people as if they automatically have all of the baggage that this whole entire group that's why we can't even have a conversation you can't even have a conversation with somebody that's on the left or somebody that's in the middle or a moderate or a libertarian or whatever why is because I'm over here, I'm a conservative, I'm not talking to you. Or I'm over here, I'm a, I'm a, a liberal, you know, leftist Nazi. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm not talking to you. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. But at the end of the day, if we would talk to someone and say, hey, what do you believe? What do you believe? And when they start spouting all of their ideological catchphrases, and you do that too, right? Stop doing that. When they start doing that, say, listen, I don't want to know what the news headings say. I want to know what you believe. And, and I'll make a deal with you. I'll, start, I'll stop sloganeering for the right if you'll stop sloganeering for the left. And let's have a conversation between me and you. Let's leave them out of this, right? 
Let's have a conversation. Man, how much progress could we make, right? Let's have, because if each individual person would do what they know, even, even people who aren't born again, if they would just stop doing the stuff they know they shouldn't be doing, the world would be a much better place, right? But especially born again people, you call yourselves believers in God. You call, and, and if you're a believer in God, if you've been born again, if you've been regener regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the Bible says that you're an ambassador of Christ, an image bearer. You are conformed to the image of Christ. That you are, and that's what Christian means. It means little Christ. Let us not walk around acting as little devils when we've been called to be little Christ. So for the clarification, let me, we'll get into this. Now suppose this man's father... So we have, don't use that anymore like this. Let's get clarification. Individuals have to account for themselves. They're righteous people. They're sinful people. Now, verse 14. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does, uh, and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with his garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. Now that's going to be important. Obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. You understand what this is saying, right? So everyone in the sound of my voice, you hear what the Bible is describing as a righteous one who will live. One who does what? Who obeys me, who lives under my statutes and obeys all my commands. Do you guys do that? I'm just saying, right? Okay. Who takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not, he shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. It cannot be any more clear. So now he's given us about three or four lines of reasoning to say that was the wrong interpretation of that text. Here's the word of the living God. Each one will give an account of their own sins. If he is righteous, then he will live. If he is unrighteous, then he will die. And it's because of his own sins and it's on his head. It's by his own hand and his own decision. Verse 18. As for his father, here, here's the, here's the hypothetical. So we had son, son, now we have father and son together. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So here you have a wicked father who raises a righteous son. And he can't be any more clear than this. This wicked father's sins, the son has escaped those. Because he chose God over the sins of his natural father. And he will be credited with his righteousness, and his father will pay for his wickedness. It cannot get any more clear. Individual accountability across the board. You will stand before God and give an account of the life that you lived, and of the things that you did, and the things that you believed. Okay, so put a little bit of this up here if you want to take some pictures or whatever. The children of wicked men will not be held responsible for the sins of their fathers. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. Now, I'll just point out here because I think this is important because many of you are in this situation. You feel like you're trapped. You can't do anything but that which is influencing you so heavily. But this very verse indicates that true change is absolutely possible. And I encourage you, be a chain breaker. 
So the, the text right here is this hypothetical situation. You have a wicked father. He does all of these wicked things. His son sees those wicked things. And instead of going down that path, he says, nah, I pass on that. I love the Lord. I'm following the Lord. I'm going this way. Some of you think you can't do that because this draw and this weight and this, this calling is too powerful. But I say unto you, by the word of the living God, is that you can turn and go another way and be a chain breaker in your family. By chain breaker, what I mean is this. I'm not suggesting that generational curses are not a legitimate thing that we deal with. I'm not, this message is not about that because that is absolutely something that we deal with. If you have a father who is wicked, who is... Uh, an adulterer, an abomination, whatever. If you have a wicked father, I believe it is manifoldly more difficult to escape from that reality than if you were to come up in a godly household. I think the, the Bible very plainly bears that out. Raise up a child in the way that they should go, that when they're older, they will not depart from it. This is the problem. This is the wisdom that if a child is raised in a biblical Christian home, then generally speaking, that's what he's going to be because you have poured into him, you have invested in him, you've sown seeds into him or her, whatever, that you are growing them up in the Lord Jesus Christ and that's what you're bringing them up in. Vice versa is true, is that if you do not do that, then generally speaking, that's not where they're going, okay? They're going down the road of sin and wickedness and whatever the case may be. So I believe that that is absolutely legit. General, general um, generational curses, I think, do exist, and they're hard to break, but it is possible to break them. It is absolutely possible to break them, and many of you in this place today, you are that break in that generational curse chain. I am one of those in my family chain that has broken those curses, and I pray to God that they will never be entered into my family again. I'm actually one of, I don't know, and this is all glory to God. Please, God, don't, because if you, if you heard my testimony, I just told you I was smoking weed at 11. I was literally laying in a ditch with my mouth ripped open. I'd been up for five days, had stole the car because I thought there was drugs in the car. There was nothing that Brandon Forey could bring to the table. Nothing, nothing, and this is what I knew. This is, this is who I was. God steps in, changes my life, okay? First one to go to college, first, first of many, many, many things, right? In my immediate family. So God steps in. Now my sons, except for my testimony, they have no clue what I'm talking about. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that. Now they'll have their own hurdles to overcome. They'll have their own demons to fight. But I like what one man said. My sons are going to have enough. My daughters are going to have enough demons to fight. I don't need them fighting mine too. Generational curses, generational blessings, I do believe are a legitimate principle of wisdom in our world and in the scripture. But it's not as if it's ironclad reality that if your father's a sinner, you are cursed and doomed to go down that exact same road. You can come out of that. I'm going to tell you how in just a second. <clears throat> the path that you take is up to you, and you will be held responsible for whichever path you take, good or bad. The righteous son will be saved by his righteousness. The wicked father will pay for his wickedness. Now, here, this is kind of like an overarching general 
representation of this whole thing, verses 19 and 20, and then we're going to wrap it. Yet you say, this is what this, so Ezekiel says, I just told you that they'll pay for their own individual sins. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Why shouldn't the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Why shouldn't he pay? That's what, that's what they're saying. Because they've already bought into this line, right? Many of you have bought into this line too. It's, it's really why, I won't say many of you, many people, many people. I'm going to paint this real picture real quick as we, as we go through. I think a lot of evangelism <coughs> doesn't take place because we believe what the people in Ezekiel's day believed. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. A lot of the times, some of us people who have maybe never experienced what it's like to come up in the house of a wicked father or be given to that type of environment, we have no room or no ability to sympathize with someone who has been in that position. Okay? And what it does is it hinders us from being able to passionately pursue real change through the gospel in those areas, in those communities, in those situations. Worse, not only sometimes does it hinder our desire to go, but sometimes it causes us, I think because many of us have believed this, it causes us to turn our nose up at those people and say things like this. You deserve that. You live on that side of the tracks, that's where you should be. Got this guy, uh, I don't think he's here today. Uh, the Lord changed my life, <clears throat> and since I was there, I actually I have a passion. I, if you know me, like that's my passion. I want to see people get set free from drugs and alcohol and just that whole life of just, man. And so it's a, it's a little bit different. And I, and I would encourage you. You know, I have a hard I have a hard time on the other side of it. Like people who grew up with everything, I'm like, you know, I don't feel I feel weird around them. You know. And so we all have our areas to work on. Is what I'm saying, but. When I see these guys in that situation, I don't think, like, okay, yeah, they do, they will have to answer for the decisions that they've made. But somewhere inside of me, I think, yeah, but how will they ever break, how will they ever get out if they don't know, if they, if they, de if they don't realize that there is another way? And I think, I would have never gotten out if someone hadn't preached the gospel to me, if someone hadn't taken the time in all of my wretchedness to preach the gospel, to love me, to minister to me, to come to Myrtle Beach to bail me out of jail, right? True story. I would, I would not know, I would not have, I would not know my children. I would not know any of you, probably, most of you. Uh, a whole host of things. We wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. I might have known you very well, brother. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Absolutely. But why don't we go? 
Why don't we go? Why do we look at now? Now I'm talking about, you know, you got these 14, 15, 16 year old kids and they are hellions, right? They're just miserable. They're running around, thieving, stealing, acting like they're all tough, you know, you know, you know. And we see them walk into our yards. And instead of thinking, man, let me go out there and talk to that young man, see if I can build a relationship. We think, how much would it cost me to build a fence around this yard? You, you laugh at that, but that is not far off. What, what, what do we got to do to get these stinking kids off these streets? We need to clean this place up around here. You know what you could do? You could go out there and sit down with that young man and say, hey, you want to have lunch today? You want to you wanna, uh, you wanna come to work? You want to, you know, whatever. I, I, there was this guy that's... Uh, Guys walking down the road, and these people started. And if this is, if you were one of these, I'm sorry, <laughs> you could be. It's a little small town. <laughs> this guy walking down the street, and everybody's like taking these pictures, put them on Facebook. They're like, I saw this guy crossing the street near my house, and he looks like he might steal. Be on the lookout. I'm serious. And I saw on this post all of these comments that were like. I need to clean these streets up. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. And, and, and it, was, it was Christians. It was Christians on the page talking about somebody needs to do something about this. And I just came on. I was like, all of you are supposed to be Christians. This is why people don't like me on Facebook. All of you are supposed to be Christians. One, how do you know? Like, you know, if you posted a video of him stealing something, be like, watch out. Okay, all right. But literally, the post was, this guy looks like he might steal something. And he might be a thief. I don't know. But that's not enough, and that's jacked up. And if you're a Christian, maybe you should go see if that guy needs something to eat or something. Maybe he's stealing that. I don't know. But what if we sit down and had a conversation? I think oftentimes that happens because we believe that they deserve what they're dealing with because their fathers have given them this fate. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? We back off because you, you deserve that because of what your fathers did, because of what your mothers did, because of what those who came before you, that's what you deserve. Well, this kind of sums all of that up. It says, <clears throat> um, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Okay, so with all of that being said, I mean, a man of, I mean, just a, a, an amazingly clear message, right? Don't condemn somebody for the actions of their father, and don't believe you're condemned automatically for the actions of your father. You have, an, you have to give an account of your own sins. Those who are righteous, they follow the Lord, they're faithful, they walk in his ways, they follow his statutes, they obey his rules, they shall surely live, and all the sinners will die. This should do two things. One, it should make us shout for joy that we serve uh, that we that we serve a glorious that's supposed to be a gloriously good and just God. Man, aren't you glad that God doesn't toast you for something your dad did? Right? 
I mean, goodness. So that's a good God. That's a just God. Secondly, it should terrify us. For we know that there are none righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Everything I just told you is that the righteous will live and the sinners will die. And let's follow up with Romans 3.10. There are none righteous. No, not even one. So all of us go, oh, Lord, what shall I do? Right? Well, Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. You see, through Christ, you don't even have to bear your own sin. Remember the text, remember the message title, Bearing Up Your Father's Sin. This is where we, this is, isn't this where a lot of us live, Brother Jake? And I, you know, I, I think I'm still shaking off some of those sins. You know, it's not fair too, because he's still shaking off some of the sins of his dad. And his dad's still shaking off some of the sins of his dad. And we're carrying around this big old weight. So we, I got my own sin. I got my own sin. Man, I'm a sinner. As, as John Piper said, I don't just do bad things. I am bad, Right? Have y'all ever seen that video? If you've never seen that video, you've got to look. Because they put it up, they put it with this Michael Jackson song, you know, because Michael Jackson said, I'm bad, right? And they got John Piper, because that was part of his message. He said, because John Piper is trying to disassociate, people try to disassociate sin with personhood. And, and John's like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, love the sin, hate the, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. I'm not getting into the theology of that. But John's saying, what do you mean? What's the difference? And John said, and it said to that, I'm bad. So it, the video says, John, is John Piper saying, I don't just do bad things. I am bad. Right? And, and I say unto you, we don't just do bad things. We are bad. There are none righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek God. So not only do we bear our own sin, but we bear the sins of those around us. Even, maybe sometimes even though we shouldn't be, right? We're carrying around all this baggage. We're carrying... Through Christ, not only do you not have to bear the sins of your father, you don't even have to bear your own sin. Whew. Whew! Man, some of y'all just ain't saved or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, why does that look like that? That's not the way it's supposed to look. See, actually, it all starts with how you respond to Christ. So, we laid it all out, unpacked it, right? He gives the right interpretation of the verse. He says, you know, yes, the fathers, their sins impact the next generation, but the next generation isn't paying for the sins of the father. They're paying for their own sins, right? And that's a whole nother sermon that the fathers, I do believe, will carry some of the weight of how their sons follow in their sins. That's a whole nother story. We can go in there right now. We've built this whole case that, that no, you're accountable for your own sin. That all of your sin is credited to your account. All of your sin is there waiting, crouching at the door to leap and bound on you and murder you and kill you and take you in and devour you. All of your sin. But through Christ, we are freed. We are released. We are set free. We are paid for. Now, Remember, we serve a just and loving God. Does God just turn a blind eye to sin? No, no. He just said in Ezekiel, where there is sin, there surely must be death. 
He that sins shall surely die. So, Jake, you've got sin, man. You're a sinner, right? You are a terrible sinner. <laughs> Brother Dan, you're a sinner. Daniel, you're a sinner. Titus, you're a sinner. Brandon's a sinner. we got all this sin, all this. Sandy, you, yeah. You, listen, I can't tell that to the ladies. I just can't do that hardly to the ladies. I don't know why. You are a sinner, though, and you know it, right? She's like, right? But we all got sin. Every man, woman, and child in the room has got all of this sin. All of it. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's good news, people. That's good news. He that sins shall surely die. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ died to pay our sin debt. And to take our sins upon himself. This is the gospel. It never gets old. Because God came down and dwelt among us and lived the life that we could not live. So that we might live the life that we should have never lived. Now, I'm going to read. And, and there's so much more that I could do. <clears throat> it's so beautiful. Because I wish I had time. So he said here, remember, I told you to remember that verse. The, in verse 17, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. Later on, in Ezekiel, in chapter 36, you know what he says at the end of the chapter? He says that, <clears throat> that those, that he will take, he will take out the heart of stone, and he will replace it with a heart of flesh, and he will take his spirit and put it inside of you and cause you to walk in his ways, to obey his rules, to walk in, and follow and keep his statutes. That he will be your righteousness. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says if anybody was going to be righteous according to the, the law and to those things, I would have been it. I would have been. If anybody was to be righteous according to the standard set forth in Ezekiel chapter 18, Paul says, I got it. But even in all of that, there are none righteous, no, not even one. But there was one who came and perfectly fulfilled the law. There was one who came and perfectly walked out the statutes. There was one who came and perfectly obeyed the Father in every jot and every tittle. There was one who came and lived above reproach that you could not even shake a stick. You couldn't even find one blemish on him. He perfectly lived. He was the righteous. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, all of these works, all of this obedience to commands, all of that, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why, Paul? 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith Whew! that through Christ you are righteous before God through Christ you are perfect you have perfectly upheld the law it is as if you've never disobeyed the Lord, not even one time. But Christ is your righteousness. And the righteousness that Christ has, had, and always will have is credited to your account as if you are the one who has done that. You see how he bears up your burdens onto himself that you might walk freely in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we go back and we read Ezekiel 18 and we go, whew, whew, whew. oh, hallelujah. Jesus Christ, our righteous, has bore up my sins that I might live forevermore. And this last song <clears throat> that we're going to do, and I'm going to help him with it, because the Lord just laid it on my heart. With this in mind, I want you to think about the magnificence and the grandeur of what Christ has done. And I want you to think about where are you at in your life? Are you continuing to still abide and dwell in the identity that has been passed down to you by wicked, sinful fathers? Or have you stepped into the Lord Jesus Christ and become righteous, not of yourself or of your works, but as a gift of God, lest any man should boast that through faith in Christ, you have become a saint instead of a sinner. You see, nothing else matters. That's the name of this song, nothing else. And when you see this, when you grasp this, when you believe this, just like these people in Ezekiel's day, they had believed one thing, and it had caused them to get stuck in this rut, stuck into this, this idea that they just had to, had to deal with it because they were actually paying for the sins of their fathers. They believed that. And so they rested or, or they, they stayed in their sins. They were content to be sinners and be found in sin. But to the one who cast all his cares aside and looks to Christ, he will be able to say that I have been made new. And nothing else matters. Nothing else Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I know you hear him calling. Don't harden your heart. Look to Christ. Be saved. Be made new. And be found in God as one through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you escape. And when you escape that way, people will follow. And prisoners will file out behind you to the land of the righteous. Worship with us. Please stand.